0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ultimate Motorcycling Podcast Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. This podcast is brought to you by the Yamaha YZF R7. The R7 is a brilliant supersport machine that is also comfortable. Now, there's an idea. Check it out at yamahamotorsports.com or you can see it for yourself at your local Yamaha dealer. This podcast is also brought to you by the new Shoeberth C5 Modular Helmet. The flip-up C5 is light and it blends safety with amazing quietness. Visit shoeberth.com for more information. This week, in the first segment, Senior Editor Nick De Sena talks to us about the new Ducati Scrambler Icon Dark. This somewhat entry-level machine still comes with all the great Ducati hallmarks of excellent low-down torque and impeccable handling. If you like to hear about fun motorcycles, then you'll enjoy this one. In the second segment, editor-at-large Neil Bailey brings us another of his interviews, this time with Chip Doherty. Chip's amazing resume includes motorcycle racer, restorer, and collector. But back in the early 2000s, he used his engineering background to start motorcycle clothing manufacturer Motophoria. After making that successful, he sold the company in 2007, and his resume gained him entry to NASA, where for seven years he was responsible for launching the space shuttle. <laughs> Since moving on from that, Chip expanded his collection of classic British bikes. Eventually, Neil persuaded him to ride to Peru and help Neil's Wellspring Foundation raise money for the orphanage there. All in a good cause. So. From all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. The YZFR7 bridges the gap between the entry level YZFR3 and the prestigious YZFR1, offering a mid level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZFR7 Provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra thin and lightweight chassis, the YZ FR7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZ FR7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours.
1: Yeah, this is uh, an addition to the the Scrambler family, which is, has definitely grown in numbers over the years. I mean, if we think back to when the original Scrambler icon was introduced in, that was in 2015, or at least unveiled 2014, not sure about those numbers completely. But it was originally launched with an 803 cc engine, and you know it was a great entry point into Ducati. Yes, absolutely, it does.
0: Um, but I mean, let's be honest. I mean, most of these bikes aren't going to see any off road at all. It's all going to be it's going to be on road. Or, or am I making the wrong assumption here?
1: Uh, I think depending on the model, uh, yes and no. I mean, some of the, some scr- scrambler models like the desert sled are definitely more off-road oriented and have components to showcase that ability and you know in general yeah i think you know when you're talking about the these models like these the scrambler icon the full throttle the cafe racer or the night shift things like that yeah they're probably extremely road oriented especially stuff like the scrambler cafe racer which doesn't have the uh Pirelli knobby tires on it, like the other models do, or some of the other other models do for that matter. But yeah, that said, you know, in my mind, it really just, something the Scrambler Icon just does a bit of everything. So you can commute on it. You can go out and have some fun on it. You could even add some luggage to it or do some small trips. And it all just kind of fits under the umbrella of being a welcoming motorcycle that can really get people into the sport of motorcycling, and and you know for Ducati that's extremely important, so that they can bring new riders into the fold and potentially have them you know graduate to other motorcycles. But that said, you know this bike is one of those models where I could see people getting a scrambler and being completely happy with it their entire riding career and just sticking within that realm. Um, you know, mainly because that 803cc engine just kind of really hits that that nice satisfying point for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, actually, you've just uh, preempted my next question. I was going
0: to say that the Scrambler comes in two different engine sizes. So obviously, this is the smaller one, the uh, 803cc L-Twin. Is this an entry level bike or
1: a sort of entry intermediate? Or is this something that will keep an expert happy as well? you know, I think it covers a lot of bases and definitely appeals to a broad audience. Looking at it from an absolute beginner's perspective, that might be a little bit too much for just a pure beginner. I mean, someone that has absolutely no motorcycling background right off the top. And we always have to color that, that observation with, you know, um, the commentary that it really depends on the rider. A pure beginner could get on a scrambler, and deal with its power that's, uh, in my opinion is quite manageable. It's a very linear motor as in it doesn't, uh, display its power in a very aggressive manner. It's very tractable and and builds on its power nicely. And you're dealing with manageable horsepower figures overall. So 73 horsepower and, um, you know, something like 49 foot pounds of torque. So good numbers, not too overbearing. And, you know, when we, when you look at it from an intermediate rider perspective or advanced rider perspective, those people are able to be satiated as well. And then, you know, looking at it from the other ends at at the, the more advanced riding spectrum, I was totally happy with it. And I think riders, you know, in, in my camp that have, you know, a number of years under their belt can really appreciate the fact that you have good, tractable power. It doesn't come in in an, in an overly aggressive manner, like I mentioned before, and it still has enough puff up top to where you can go you know, freeway speeds, and it has plenty of punch throughout the rev range to where it never seems boring to someone that's really going to be flogging the motor. And then to someone that's maybe less experienced, they're going to have plenty of performance on hand to explore and still be engaged and excited about it the entire time. So to answer the question, I feel like the 803cc engine appeals to, you know, uh, quite a large audience in the same way that things like the Bonneville T120, the Yamaha MT07, you know, motorcycles of that milk are kind of all in that same realm where they don't necessarily have one audience and they can do a lot of things for a lot of people. And this is just another one of those examples. So yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I, I really enjoy this engine overall. Um, mainly because of, of how user-friendly it is without ever becoming you know stale in any way. It's always just got that nice, um, just kind of masculine L-Twin feel. And it really taps into the old school two-valve um, Ducati engines that that I, I love, you know, with its just solid exhaust note and, you know, things like that. This is the air-cooled L-Twin, obviously.
0: Correct. Correct. As you say, those are modest, but not... Um, not horrible sort of engine power output numbers. What is the weight like? I mean, it strikes me as a fairly compact motorcycle. It's not small, but it's definitely pretty compact. So I would imagine it's fairly light, which is going to make the thing perform pretty well.
1: Yeah. So it's on the lighter end of the spectrum for sure. It's in that 417 claimed weight um, arena. So there are lighter motorcycles on the market. Lighter and more powerful motorcycles on the market, stuff like the 890 Duke, for example. But the advantage of something like the Scrambler is, as you mentioned, it's in a compact package. So sitting on the bike, you don't feel, you know, overly constrained. You don't feel like you're, you know, claustrophobic in the saddle, and that goes to its kind of uh, very neutral and and accommodating ergonomics. But you know, everything's kept nice and low. It has relaxed geometry, but it's all in a very tight package overall. Then you add in that 73 horsepower figure that we mentioned earlier and things come into parity quite well. So it can really push around that that 417 pounds quite easily. And it's in a very nimble, approachable, user-friendly package like I remember. So that's kind of the theme of the Scrambler Icon and the Scrambler Icon Dark is that these things are just uh, you know they can be a lot of different bikes to a lot of different people um essentially because of how accessible and user-friendly ducati has made this motorcycle from every every perspective when we talk about its power to weight ratio you know things really start uh start to harmonize and you're able to to use that power in a in a very positive way as in the bike and the chassis and everything tends to work well with each other. And I think that's kind of what we're leading into next is just the chassis feel. Okay, before we get into that, we're talking about the Icon Dark here.
0: So is the change just purely cosmetic on on this one?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Well, cosmetic and there's also a financial benefit as well. So as you know, if you think back to early Ducati models, uh, sometimes there would be a dark option the early monster models that or 749 and 999 uh, motorcycles that had a dark option. Typically, this was just the same motorcycle mechanically uh, by and large as the, as the base model option in that product line, but everything was presented in, you know, the color black. That's the only color option. The components were blacked out. You know, it just didn't have all of the, the colorful fanfare that, other models might have. Now the scrambler icon dark follows that same exact logic. And there are a couple little model specific changes for the dark model. Uh, For example, it has a different pair of uh, rear view mirrors. So there are these little round mirrors instead of the the other mirrors that are on the uh, scrambler icon and a couple other scrambler models. It doesn't have the machines embellishments on the 10 spoke cast aluminum wheels. And there's also a black ring on the LED headlight. But by and large, what you see is what you get. All of these blacked out bits will definitely appeal to you. And it comes in, you know, just very, I would say, um, rich uh, in terms of texture and, and appearance. Uh, a matte finish on the on the fuel tank still has the the attractive little uh, silver bit that's attached to the fuel tank here. and those are actually replaceable on all the Scrambler models so you can kind of go and get those customized or go for aftermarket options and what have you. But yeah, you know aside from just the aesthetics, it it also saves you about a thousand dollars, well, not about a thousand dollars. saves you exactly a thousand dollars because the MSRP is eight thousand. 995 for the scrambler icon dark and for the standard scrambler icon which is available in um, a couple different color options you know much brighter options your your reds and yellows and such that is 9995 so you can also save a grand and that's not really a bad deal in my opinion
0: yeah that's that's you know really very inexpensive i mean uh (laughs) there's still a lot of money, you know, depending on where you sit. But uh, compared to, you know, these typically most motorcycles we sit here talking about, we're looking at, you know, 15, 20, $25,000 range. All of a sudden, we're talking about a bike that's less than 10 grand. um, And this is less than nine. So that's, you know, that's, uh, that's impressive. I think that makes it makes it very, very appealing. So what what were your thoughts on the on the chassis then on on the scrambler in general? I mean, do they do all models have the same chassis and they're just variations, or or is is the Icon series a specific type of chassis?
1: There are a number of different scrambler iterations out there. Uh, the The middleweights uh, we're just going to focus in on those for now, and you know some of this commentary may apply to other models, but the middleweights really you know stick with the Uh, steel trellis frame, uh, you know, that's true to the core of Ducati, um, kind of classic Ducati chassis design. And the Scrambler Icon and the Scrambler Icon Dark, as well as the full throttle, they all share frame, suspension, wheels, tires, things of that nature. When you get into some of the more specialized models, such as the uh, Scrambler Cafe Racer, Uh, That has some different tires on it and different wheels. And then you have the desert sled, which is obviously more off-road oriented. But realistically, yeah, you know, all of these things um, are are by and large sharing the same frame. The uh, desert sled is the most modified of the bunch. But for everything that's road oriented, there are variations on the theme. And when we talk about the Scrambler Icon and the Scrambler Icon Dark and the Full Throttle, Those are all sharing the same suspension components and stuff like that. So you do have some on paper, I will say, probably just more straightforward approach to suspension overall. In the front, we are working with a 41 millimeter upside down Kayaba fork. And a couple of years back during the 2019 refresh for the Scrambler, these springs and damping rates and things like that were updated Uh, Just to bring some more compliance into the mix, essentially. And uh, the same can be said of the shock as well. That was reworked as well. Overall, you know, this is one of those things where despite the lack of adjustability, because the fork is non-adjustable and then the shock only features spring preload, you know, I'm in that 180, 190 pound range. And although it's definitely sprung and damped on the lighter end of the spectrum to just make the bike more compliant make it pitch into turns and things like that uh, much easier for, let's say less experienced riders. I still think that it does quite well because it's, it's damping is done in such a way where it doesn't allow the chassis to get loose. It never really feels truly uncomfortable on the edge of the tire, even if you are pushing quite aggressively. So they've really done a good job with the, you know, steel trellis frame as well as the, the suspension. To kind of hit a middle ground that works for a lot of different people and a lot of different purposes. So when you're cruising along in town, you know, hitting potholes and things like that, dealing with rough roads, you don't get a lot of that translated into the uh, riding experience as negativity. You don't really feel it uh, to any any detrimental degree. And you know, if you do happen to start pushing, then you can still do that as well, and it's not going to snap up on you. And you know, thinking about other quote-unquote entry-level motorcycles, let's think about Ninja Four Hundred, CBR 300s. Sometimes the suspension in that class of motorcycle can be a little bit too flimsy, depending on who you are and where you are as a rider. But uh, no, this does quite well, quite well overall. And that's that's something that's quite nice about this bike.
0: It is probably ride by wire, but but does not come with a really sophisticated electronics package, I would imagine, at that price point.
1: Instead of ride by wire, they actually keep it quite old school, which does fit with a motorcycle. Um, it's still a cable-actuated throttle. Um, so there's no ride modes of any kind. Uh, there's also no traction control, which kind of speaks to the tractability of the engine. As I mentioned before, it's really user-friendly, especially on the road. You have tons of grip to play with, so it's never really going to get out from underneath you. And if you do go for a cheeky little scrambler rip on a paved road or something like that, the way it breaks traction and how you can control the slide is just so manageable that I'm not really sure TC would would be doing you any favors here. I mean, it'd be nice, but I don't think you really need it. So the one um, electronic edition that they got back in 2019 or for the, the 2019 refresh, Uh, was cornering abs and that i think is incredibly important especially when we think about the scrambler icon and icon dark appealing to less experienced riders Um, on the street even when i was trying to sort of find the limits of cornering abs didn't ever really trigger prematurely for me never once the only time i was actually aware that the abs was there and kind of how I actually tested it was when I kind of ripped around on a little trail and then I could feel ABS intervening. That said, even off-road, as long as your inputs are nice and smooth, you can stop 100%. But yeah, the corner ABS is a, is a pretty huge benefit in my opinion. Original middleweight scramblers weren't equipped with that. Now they are. And that's something that uh, I think anyone can appreciate from any skill level.
0: Nice. What sort of braking does it have on it? Are these uh, presumably their lower-level Brembos, maybe?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's the same four-piston Brembo caliper and a 330-millimeter disc uh, up front, and then we have another 245-millimeter uh, disc with a one-piston uh, caliper in the rear. You know, pretty basic braking setup and, you know, single rotor in the front and the rear, so you don't have dual discs. Uh, braking performance, I would say, overall is match to the performance of the motorcycle quite nicely you know feel is is it's good you know it's you have to remember that it is a 407 pound motorcycle and you are dealing with one disc and one caliper up front so they are doing quite a bit of heavy lifting and you can stop in a hurry if you dig into them so the power is absolutely there and looking at it from a more experienced rider's perspective i could see how someone might want an additional rotor and caliper that's fine. The thing is, what we got actually works pretty well. So I, I don't really have any hard complaints about that. Um, you know, and they also, this is one of those things where, where Ducati has really kind of zeroed in on the audience. The, the initial bite of the break uh, in the front, especially, is quite soft and unintimidating. So it really allows riders that maybe just kind of uh, are graduating from true absolute beginner motorcycles coming into something with a little bit more power and performance um, to understand the brakes that they have under them uh, that are ostensibly going to be more powerful. So Ducati has done a lot of things with this motorcycle to kind of soften the edges for those less experienced individuals without souring the experience for someone that that definitely has a lot of seat time so that that's kind of it on the brakes I suppose it looks like a comfortable motorcycle to ride
0: is it what, what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah I, I think the ergonomics and this is kind of why I mentioned things like the Bonneville earlier is because the ergonomics are just that classic neutral riding position you you sit in a nice flat bench seats so you have some uh riser handlebars that come up and meet you and probably go up in a pretty much bolt upright position and then the foot pegs are mounted in a way that um you know they're they're on the comfort end of the spectrum they're not too low to where they just grind out prematurely um but they don't cause a lot of knee bends and i stand at five foot ten inches 32 inch inseam so if you were to reference photos from the story you'd see that i'm not cramped in any way um, Taller riders, because of that big flat bench seat, you can scoot to and fro. You have a lot of mobility there. Um, You know, it is a naked bike, so there is a lack of wind protection. But realize that it's an 803cc engine. You're not going to be going 110 miles an hour. You know, you're going to be in that speed delta of probably 55 to 75 a lot of the time. Definitely has more power to go above that. But, you know, the scrambler is not this high speed thing you're going to be bouncing around town, doing some of the back roads, you know, it's, it's kind of set up for that. And in terms of just raw comfort, well, it is comfortable. It's a very neutral handling motorcycle, very neutral positions, motorcycle as well. And, you know, that's something that I definitely appreciate, whether I was riding to the gym or just, you know, going out for a casual little ride in the canyons. Um, It's not as pointed and aggressive as other motorcycles might be. Um, so that's the thing that I really appreciate. Bikes like the Scrambler that really mentally for me fall under what we call the standard category. One of the most uh, iconic we're, uh, motorcycles in that class would, would, be, would be something like the Bonneville. And that's what really this neutral riding position hits on. It's kind of, again, a, you know, a lot of different uh, people can get on this and feel at home. Cool, yeah. It, it's it's a nice looking it's a nice
0: looking bike, um, like you say, unintimidating. Um, it looks like fun. Um, I rode one briefly a few years ago and and really enjoyed it. Um, so, it sounds as though the Icon Dark is a um, with with that slight reduction in price, it makes it really accessible for people to get into into motorcycles in general and into the Ducati brand if you feel like it. Overall, it sounds like you really liked it.
1: Yeah, I did. You know, there there really aren't too many bad sides to this motorcycle as well. I mean, I think Ducati's done a really fine job with the scrambler. You know, it definitely hits all of the, the vintage sort of aesthetics quite nicely, you know, from the badging to kind of this is a feature that I, I entirely know if this was intentional or not, but the way the brake lines loop over the L C D dash kind of in this old school scrambler um, motif, just the way they, they float up. It just reminds me of BMX bikes and things like that. So it, it just really appeals to me on that level. And then, you know, you have the LED headlight. That's definitely beneficial for for riders that are going to be, you know, commuting home at night from work or school or whatever. You know, the, the only thing that I really did notice that, that could be improved was um, some ground clearance on the right side. If you do start you know ripping on the scrambler pretty aggressively you can you can touch down that exhaust shield and uh you know that can be kind of a badge of honor but um you know it it's it does speak to its handling capabilities as in you know you're you kind of get caught up in the moment and you're like oh man this this thing can actually go pretty good and you start having some some serious fun and then you're like oh okay well I'm on the exhaust so but um you know, that, that's kind of one of the only, the only true blemishes I, you know, the, the price point of it is, is quite attractive. And as it stands of publication, oh. of the argument, and it is the cheapest and most affordable uh, Ducati model in their Scrambler lineup, as well as the overall Ducati family. So if you want to get into the brand, the most affordable way to do it next to getting something used, you know, which can come with its own uh, um, issues. Um, But, you know, overall, I think they've done a really fine job. You know, it does have the sort of vintage themed, we'll say LCD dash. I think that is getting just a little bit long in the tooth when you kind of think about some of the full color TFT displays that, are on the market for motorcycles in this price point, but it also has a lot of good functionality in it as well. You have fuel gauge, gear indicator. Um, you can also pair um, it to Medium. Does require a little Apple Bluetooth accessory that plugs in on the seat, but you know it it has a lot of functionality, even if the looks are just a little bit on that um, um, kind of dated side. But but that's sort of a here nor there thing. That that's more of a preferential. Uh, comment
0: so the last thing i guess is uh is the tires what kind of what are the tires like on this
1: yeah so you know the the tires are the prelly mt60 rs tires you know they've been around for a, a long time they come on a you know uh, as oem fitment on a handful of different models not just to the ducati scrambler family uh, but they fit that classic kind of uh scrambler vibe they're blocky and um you know, they, they just have that sort of off-road appearance to them. Using them on the street, you might think, hmm, that could compromise some grip and handling capabilities uh, for the street. I, I wouldn't make that claim at all. And in fact, I think they do quite well, you know, despite their design and appearance. And then, you know, when you kind of take it off-road, that's where those tires also work decently. Um, so you, they, they hook up, especially in the rear quite nicely. They break traction predictably, and you can kind of control slides and it becomes really fun um, when you're riding the scrambler on a little dirt trail or something like that, you know, with the t- tires that you have underneath you, because they do provide a decent amount of grip off the pavement, and you're dealing with relaxed geometry, we'll say, and that gives the, the bike quite a bit of stability. So, you know, overall, this is actually a tire that that's, uh, I enjoy quite a bit. Awesome.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for your thoughts on the uh, Scrambler Icon Dark. Appreciate it. Sounds like a good little bike.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, if you need a standard bike, you know, you want, you kind of want to get your feet wet and figure out where you want to go in the world of motorcycling. This is one of those bikes that you can use as a perfect platform to sort of customize and start pushing in different directions. And that's one of the really strong things about the scrambler icon and the dark ostensibly that we've seen with uh, the model over the years just how how many different directions it can be taken you know it's been used in flat track hooligan racing uh, we have personal friends that have raced this um in arma road racing so on the racetrack we've seen people take these things on interstate tours it it's just really speaks to its capability and uh, versatility as a motorcycle. And that's something that I think a lot of people can appreciate. And again, with the scrambler icon dark, you're sitting in a grand as well. So, you know, I, I think that's a good idea. It's all
0: good. All right, well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate your, your time and insight. Okay. 2022 is the 100th anniversary of Schuberth Helmets, head protection technology made in Germany. The DOT version of the new C5 launches this June, and it offers a revised fit with customizable inner pads for comfort, increased ventilation with a new chin air intake and rear exhaust spoiler, and increased safety with new EPS material and anti-roll-off system. It also has a locking mechanism to hold the chin bar open, and it's pre-wired for the new SC2 communication system offering mesh by Senna. Learn more about the all-new features at Shoeberth.com The new Shoeberth C5 Endless Evolution There's a place where the track meets the street where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of supersport machine. It's called our world and the Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1 offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle as well as experienced riders seeking a fully-faired motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true Supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine, inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite Canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. In the second segment, editor-at-large Neil Bailey brings us his interview with Chip Doherty. Chip's amazing resume includes motorcycle racer, restorer and collector. But back in the early 2000s, he used his engineering background to start motorcycle clothing manufacturer Motoforia. After making that successful, he sold the company in 2007 and his resume gained him entry to NASA, where for seven years, he was responsible for launching the space shuttle. (laughs) Since moving on from that, Chip expanded his collection of classic British bikes. Eventually, Neil persuaded him to ride to Peru and help Neil's Wellspring Foundation raise money for the orphanage there. All in a good cause
2: how does one go from fix being 12 years old fixing a broken hodaka with a manual to launching the space shuttle so you're going to to start as a young man young lad dad gets you and your brother a pair of hodakas and and
3: hodakas sorry
2: i got the okay so how did that all pan out
3: yeah interesting story started off at 12 years old riding around on a little homemade mini bike to uh begging my father to get me a Nice proper dirt bike. So he bought my brother and I a pair of Hodaka dirt squirts back in the mid early 70s.
2: So this up in Massachusetts, where you're from? Yes, yeah.
3: Massachusetts and New Hampshire. We mm. had a summer place up there in New Hampshire where we would ride around. So uh, my dad bought bought my brother and I a brand new Hodaka dirt squirts and bought a service manual for it and said, here kid, you better read this because I'm not spending a nickel on service. So a Hodeca dirt squirt, was it a small two stroke? Yeah, it's a 100cc dirt squirt, two stroke, made out of the company called Pabatco, which was actually a Japanese import. So it was manufactured in Japan, assembled in Oregon, and sold throughout the United States.
2: But they were very popular when you were very there. Popular. Okay. So this very popular, so very popular.
3: So popular, in fact, that uh, it's a little bit of a cult following these days. Even Do you today. have one now? Actually, I have one now, Neil. So <laughs> I was a bike that I rode when I was 12 and 13. And uh, 30 years later, I was walking a flea market in uh, Daytona Beach and came across a bike uh, sitting in a junk pile next to a bunch of old Harleys and uh, ended up buying it dragging it out of there got the thing running the same day and then ended up restoring it and it was the same year and model as the one I had when I was 12 or 13. Oh that's so cool but I like this story that so dad's basically like you
2: can ride it do what you want but you're fixing it if something goes wrong yeah and of course something went wrong
3: right of course (laughs) so he says here kid here's a manual you better read this because I'm not spending a nickel on service and I say yeah right dad I took the manual threw it in the corner and off riding my bike I go my brother and I so what happens next we're riding out in the woods right right having a gray and all time and uh, I seem to come too close to a tree smashed into the tree broke off the shift lever which broke off the shift shaft inside the engine case and guess what I was all done No more bike. So somehow I got the bike home by jump-starting it and keeping it in gear and uh, got home and said, Dad, come on, we got to go to the service department and fix this bike. He says, I already told you, you better read that manual. I'm not spending a nickel on service. So I said, Dad, I don't know a screwdriver from a monkey wrench. He goes, well, you better figure it out. Meanwhile, my brother's riding around on his, having a time of his life, and I'm stuck at home trying to figure out how to be a motorcycle mechanic at age 12 or 13. Well, so I ended up tearing this thing apart three, four, five times, trying to get it to fix right. And of course, after the first two, three, four times, I was getting pretty frustrated, but I ended up getting it fixed on the fifth try or so. And that's what changed the world. So from there, I got this bike running and Traded it in from there and uh, had my first Harley Davidson before I had my motorcycle license or even any license. My first Harley at 15 and had another one at 16 and went on and on from there. But there's something, so there was a very significant
2: bike in this order because somehow you end up with the Triumph Jubilee Bonneville 750. So that would have been 1977.
3: 77, that's right. You bought it brand new? Yeah, so
2: where did did you come up with the money at 16 to buy But that would have been a big bike for me at 16 Yeah,
3: it was a big bike, but I had already had a couple Harleys before that so i had been riding since I was 12 So Mm -hmm. the bike did the size didn't intimidate me, but um, You know I was an entrepreneurial young lad and we (laughs) scraped together money and what were you doing to scrape the money together? That's a whole nother story. Okay, so we're not there,
2: right? You were buying and selling, shall we say?
3: Buying and selling. Commodities. Mostly selling, yes. Right.
2: Was well, as long as you sell for a higher <laughs> price than you buy, right?
3: Well, we were, I, I, let's just say I had the entrepreneurial spirit from a young age. But it yielded enough money to buy the... To scrape this bike together was a 1977 Triumph Silver Jubilee. They only made 1,000 of them.
2: Well, I remember them from England. From I mean, England, sure. I actually, did a girl whose father had one. And he would never let me anywhere near it. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. In fact, we're sitting in the Barber Museum for this interview, and there's uh, one on display right downstairs. We got a chance yeah. to look at it earlier. So, kind of an interesting piece of motorcycle. Um,
2: but you I, had, wrote, I mean, but you guys were kind of ragging it around the woods. and... Yeah,
3: I rode it out in the woods and traded kids a beer and have them take it for a ride and. Hit a few cars and left it out in the woods one night, and you know, just really kind of abused and used this thing. But that was in my my you know late teens, early twenties. And then when I got to be in my late twenties, I kind of cleaned up my act a little bit and looked at this motorcycle back from the 70s and said, you know, this thing's kind of really nice. I would really like to restore it. Of course. I had worked on motorcycles but I'd never done a full restoration so I jumped right in there and uh, tore the bike apart and I elicited the help of a, a very well known uh, motorcycle mechanic and restorer in Massachusetts and uh, brought the bike to him and he uh, got, a, got it restored and did the paint work while I did a lot of the uh, engine prep and rebuild. So the challenge around that was the poor man passed away while I had my bike at his shop so I ended up losing my parts and they were gone for about a year and then one day I saw an ad for some Triumph Silver Jubilee parts in, a, in the newspaper and I ended up calling the guy up and it turned out to be were your part my buddy's nephew who had inherited his uh, uncle's shop and parts and they were my parts. So I explained the situation and he didn't seem to really care, but I ended up buying my parts back. So,
2: but you, were, but you, this was really a first, I mean, meticulous restoration because the bike is still like in new condition. Yeah, today. it's,
3: it's pretty nice. So I recadmium and plated all the the spokes and the hubs and replated, repainted, rewired, did the whole thing. Uh, and I that was your it. first restoration. Yeah, right? my first restoration. So at the
2: at the time you 80s. came to restoring the Triumph, you had obviously had other bikes. Yeah. I mean, buying and selling, yeah. Resta- yeah. fixing.
3: Yeah, I'd always had. I've had motorcycles continuously since I was twelve. I think I've owned a couple hundred motorcycles yeah. personally over the years. I still own a number of them. Today. So by the
2: time you've restored the jubilee, obviously you're what close to thirty years old now not even you've given up your wild days you're yeah a clean, sober yeah fellow with a good up thing you've started yeah. your own business you've In got meantime, engineering I got an school. engineering
3: degree, yeah, so I went to college and got a mechanical and electrical engineering degree, and um, I actually started my own engineering business that morphed into other businesses that started into other businesses. So, And I mean, your career, which we'll get a little more to later,
2: I mean, your engineering background, you're married to your entrepreneurial spirit. You had your own businesses, you were traveling all over the world, you had yep. factories on the East Coast, the West Coast, getting involved with semiconductors and computer chips yep. and medical tech,
3: medical equipment, yeah, aerospace work.
2: but. As much as you were very immersed in your career and building businesses, you never neglected the bikes, did you? Always because had you bikes. went on to buy, restore, collect, race.
3: Yeah, it was always my hobby.
2: So tell yeah, us a little bit about the, some of those bikes as this career is expanding.
3: Yeah, but been on the racetrack since 1986, mostly just club racing and having fun. What was your first race bike? Uh, Ducati uh, 900 SS. Yeah, got into the Ducatis in the 80s. Really loved them. Uh, loved the exoticness of the Italian brands and the marquees and the, the sound and the dry clutch and the torque steer. It's just fascinating.
2: But after you nine, this, is that when you got the 750 Super Sport that you raced? Later. Later, yeah. Later on, yeah. And did you ever race a 996, 998, anything?
3: No, but I did, uh, was involved in um, designing and manufacturing uh, uh, what I believe to be one of the world's first titanium motorcycle frames for Ducatis. Yeah, so it's an interesting project. Tell us about
2: that. What made you decide? Oh, I'm going to build a titanium race frame for a 996 Ducati. This is
3: ah, uh, it sounded like a good idea at the time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> why? Why not? Right.
3: So, uh, was it just like a a hobbyist project, or did you see it as yeah, a commercial? Yeah, no. Thing? I met a guy who had. Some interest in doing it as well when I was racing out in Las Vegas actually and uh, he had he had actually developed the project and I jumped in there to uh, help lead and get some engineering design and manufacturing input don't forget by this time I had a fabrication facility with welders and fabricators machine shops electromechanical assemblers we were building equipment for the semiconductor medical equipment in the biotech world so making little motorcycle parts were pretty rudimentary i guess at that they
2: really point. didn't seem that complicated no so explain a bit more of the titanium you used
3: because it was a russian 6-4 titanium russia sources most of the titanium in the world and uh, titanium of course is is uh, much stronger and lighter than aluminum Mm. so it has some very nice applications for lightness however it's also very strong but also somewhat brittle and springy Mm. so it has different characteristics than a typical chrome molly or steel or aluminum Um, so you've got to take those into account as you're designing and fabricating so in the frame that you actually designed,
2: do you uh, Made what six or seven and so yeah. them and kept one for yourself. Right. There's a lot of gusseting around the headstock and the side frames. Is right. that for strengthening purposes?
3: Yes, yes, for torsional rigidity yeah. and for lateral stability. So there's things that we tried to do to optimize it so that we wouldn't uh, catapult the rider off, off the track when it imparts, you know, a titanium will absorb a lot of energy and then it will kick it back. Uh, once it gets to a certain spring modulus acts like a spring yeah. so for every force there's an equal opposite reaction so
2: and you said earlier on when you were talking about the frame that the better set it would be good to run a softer setup with the frame because of the
3: rigidity yeah you've got to set up your suspension a little bit differently than a conventional but as it's no different than any other motorcycle that needs to be tuned once you get it on the road or onto the racetrack
2: yeah and I mean massive saving in weight
3: yes significant yeah,
2: I mean, uh, a friend of ours of Collec actually has one of your frames, and he said, I think he said thirteen to fourteen pounds yeah. total.
3: Yeah, pretty light. So. Yeah, the subframe is in the ounces range, under under a pound or so.
2: Yeah, I mean, you pick it up; it's, it's incredible. Light. You would think it was it's even light in the plastic. Yes, piece,
3: it? yeah, it's almost featherweight. Mm-hmm.
2: So working through your chronology of race bikes there was the 900 SS the 750 supersport yeah, which you had I, a good friend really work over right
3: yes yes yeah had a great friend raced um, with at uh, a Bruce Meyer shop up in New Hampshire mm. so New Hampshire International Speedway was kind of our home track yeah
2: but you raced up and down yeah I' been up,
3: up, so. up a number of tracks up and down yeah so um, yeah, I also did a stint at uh, vintage motorcycle racing, so I had a, a Ducati 350 bevel drive. Single, yeah. Yeah, single. What, does, what made you
2: think to go, just cause you were seeing vintage bikes? Yeah, track, because or? you
3: know, you could double your race time, right? So you go in, you've got the vintage racing and then you've got the modern racing. So you could basically run multiple classes and, you know, twice, uh, double your track time. Yeah. So the, the only challenge is, you know, vintage motorcycles will go fast challenges stopping braking (laughs) pointing suspension so at some point um i needed to give up vintage racing because from switching from modern bikes to vintage bikes was just such
1: a challenge
2: oh it really is um i remember coming in off a trip to riding into history on a 1967 motor guzzi v7 one of dennis Gage's, when we did our tv show and it was a right foot shift, you know, one up and three down. I think if I'm, I can't remember, if it was down and up. It was on the right, and I flew home. And the next day, I went to do a track day on my Yamaha R six with conventional <laughs> left foot shifting, and every corner totally I turned in so early. Yeah. I was almost running up the inside. Exactly. It's so different.
3: It's night and day. Yeah. And never mind chassis wobble,
2: suspension. Yeah. Yeah. So. But you get used to the old ones, then you get on a modern one. You don't know what to do with
3: it. No. Yeah. And the power is so much greater and the acceleration braking.
2: But during this time period, do you, is this when you started your collection? Because you've had a very prestigious collection yeah, of I think antique you, bikes. Yes. Um, I should add actually before you start that one of your restorations or light restorations is actually here in the Barber Museum. So That's right, Yeah. You obviously work to a quality that Barber said, hey, we want your bikes so Yes.
3: Yeah, one of my things is I'm a little bit of a perfectionist and I enjoy quality mm. and um when i do restorations i'll either do a hundred you know as close to a hundred point restoration as i can Mm. or i'll do something completely custom and just have fun cafe racer chopper bobber and i've done a number of those over the years just for myself
2: so you've been fairly agnostic i mean you'll you'll do harley's bsa's triumphs yeah i've
3: had the the blessings to be able to have owned Triumphs, BSAs, Ducatis, Norton's, BMWs, Vincents, Honda, Suzuki's, Yamahas, Motor Gutsies, Harley Davidsons.
2: Yeah, so you've been all across um, the board with your yeah, restorations. Yeah, I've stayed
3: away from some of the exotic bikes from the twenties, thirties, forties because you can only, you know, you can only be an expert in so many. different but one of, one
2: of, of your, bikes. one of your top restorations, I think, is your three TA was it the one that yeah won, it was your best of show out of 350 bikes and yeah
3: yeah yeah was that riding into history or what yeah riding it? into history in 2015 i won best of show out of 350 motorcycles invite Which only
2: i'm sure you're pretty proud of that moment yeah too.
3: it was pretty interesting i i haven't done it since i brought six motorcycles took home six awards including best of show
2: so the three TA, which
0: is
3: a, what a nineteen—that no, was a 5TA, five TA. Yeah. Five TA, I'm sorry. Yeah. A 1962 Triumph Speed Twin bathtub. I keep thinking, yeah, that's how I keep yeah. thinking about your bathtub model, yeah. Speed Twin. Yeah, bathtub. Um, I had a '64 Triumph, I, mostly Triumphs. So I had my Triumph Silver Jubilee, the first one I did, and that mm. got a, a honorable mention in the the 750 class or so the late model Triumph Twin class, and then I had a number of other um bikes in there one custom ch- uh chopper that i think i did and that one as well
2: and, and and a number of these are bikes you had actually restored yourself they oh, weren't yeah. just bikes you bought and put in yeah the store. I,
3: i've i've tried to get a little smarter these days if i can find one that's done <laughs> impeccably i i'd rather write the check than spend a year doing them
2: yeah but you enjoyed that in the day i do yeah.
3: i still do i have a i have a couple on the bench right now i've got a yamaha rd uh, 350 two-stroke that I'm doing. Um, is that that's the old YDS?
2: Along. Excuse me? Is that the old YDS? Um, were they YDS 7s or were they 250 something? Like that? No, it was a
3: 350 two-stroke RD, uh, 350. RD 350.
2: Yeah, I think yeah. we used to call them YDS series.
3: Yeah, uh, I'm not sure about that. Days. I'm not an expert on those. This is yeah, my no. first this is really my first two-stroke since uh, Hodaka back when I was tw- 13 or 14 years Interesting. old. Yeah. Yeah, so It ought to be interesting.
2: So you had gone through a couple of different reiterations or versions of your career now, different companies you'd sold. You've done a lot of world travel. And so you, all of this experience, racing, riding, restoring, tuning, you sell your company, decide you're going to take a completely different path, which is when our paths crossed. And tell us what that was, because this is a completely radical departure from building semiconductors and
3: Correct, yes. Microchips. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I had the good fortune in 2001 to to uh, sell one of our companies and um, I was able to take a little bit of a change in life. Uh, I took a two week vacation and then started a new business uh, <laughs> after that second You said week. no golf and... So, no. And um, so we were on the racetrack. Um, riding and i saw a lot of my friends falling getting hurt breaking bones breaking fingers getting body parts ground off from the tarmac and i said you know what i bet i could do a better job than some of this gear that's out there so i was foolish enough to kind of think i could do it and guess what i i guess i did (laughs) yeah so i went out and i designed some race gloves first worked with some manufacturers we did prototypes we got some things going also had a collaboration with some uh, people in california to get things going and i started in my garage and um grew it into you know a fairly significant enterprise um we had tens of thousands of retail customers and Mm -hmm. uh, several hundred dealers across the country and that's when i met you neil as a a great job as our public relations manager and uh, advertising. Well, campaign. I mean, I wore your stuff all over the world. Yeah, you did. I you mean, got us to Scotland. And, we uh, did
2: your vintage gear for our first TV show with Triple on Two Wheels in Scotland. Excellent. I wore your two-piece race suit with a Thruxton test in England on a freezing cold day. I had a track suit on an Aprilia test here that you were actually at. That's right. Uh, your one-piece, and then your textile stuff and yeah I I was completely kitted out in your stuff for for
3: many years yeah that was quite a time yeah it was good fun wasn't it it was we yeah. had a nice run at it unfortunately this little thing called the housing crisis kicked in in 2006-7 <laughs> and the industry seemed to shut down overnight so so that was when you decided to sell that company. yeah so I ended up selling that
2: but and but here's here's the craziest part so just on a whim, you decide, oh, I'll send my, I'll make a resume, which you'd never done, right? Why don't I send it to NASA? Correct? Yeah. And yeah. NASA said, come on in. And the next thing you get hired and they say, well, hey, you want to launch the space shuttle? <laughs> this is <laughs> pretty just, close.
3: It's the craziest story. It is a crazy story. So I had sold motorphoria after a number of years and was sitting on the beach in Florida and said, now what? So, uh, as you mentioned, I put the first resume of my life together, sent it off down to the Space Center, and two weeks later they gave me a call inviting me to be a VIP to uh, watch the next launch, and they wanted to interview me for a senior engineering slash manager position uh, at the Kennedy Space Center to help uh, launch the space shuttle. And I said, sure, sign me up. So how many years did you spend
2: with them? Oh, seven. So, you have seven years full time yeah. with them. Yeah,
3: six And or you, seven. you oversaw
2: 13 launches?
3: No, no, no. Well, there's
2: 30 in your time there, About right?
3: 30. Didn't yeah. you say
2: there was 13 of you were actually at, or were you at all of them?
3: No, no, I was present for all of okay, them. Okay, I must have yeah. misheard that. Sometime. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah, so it was I mean, quite no, an stress la- no stress launching the space shuttle, right? No, none. Pretty piece of cake. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Pretty interesting. I got hired there to find out that I was in the top single digit percent of the fifteen person workforce and could kind of go anywhere do anything ask any foolish question and participate in any uh, technical discussion or problem resolution that i wanted to get involved with
2: but there was a purpose from nasa for wanting you because you hadn't come up through their systems and they needed someone to look at it from a broader perspective yeah
3: that was that was where my unique skill set apparently resonated with some of the senior directors there so um, i had had the unique opportunity of to have been an entrepreneur basically my whole professional career Mm -hmm. with a pretty strong engineering background and a diversity of uh, technical subjects and that's what they were looking for after the second space shuttle was launched was lost in 2004 the the second accident they halted space travel uh, throughout the united states and they wanted to hire some uh, individuals that had some good experience and competencies that weren't necessarily raised in the space environment space center environment And that I fit that bill so had a great time uh, they did hire me and I'm glad they didn't ask me if I would have done it for free because <laughs> I probably would have yeah I mean what a dream job unbelievable you talk about big boy toys so you know motorcycles are my passion two wheels to motor and then to be able to get involved in launching the most complex, most powerful machine that's ever been developed by man is just uh, an amazing opportunity.
2: Well, like you said, you you could watch it take off from your office window and you could watch it land from your office. Right,
3: it would take off from outside, fly 14 million miles two weeks later Boom, it lands right at the Kennedy Space Center, right outside my office. We wheel it in, we overhaul it, refurbish it. Well, and like then an get oil it ready. change tire person. Yeah, do a quick oil change, kick the tires, and get it set back up. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, that, I mean, but, and interestingly enough, throughout that period of time that you were um, with NASA, you were still collecting and restoring bikes yeah. in your spare time. Yeah, so
3: that's when my, my bike collection started to go awry, if you will. Um, so, I just enjoyed motorcycles and I started, you know, really collecting them and restoring them. And I I really got into the British marquees, the Triumphs, BSAs, Vincent's, Norton's. And that's really where I just love the aesthetics, the the performance of just that old school uh, look, feel, design, that Edward Turner era Mm, of mm. design, it's just uh, amazing
2: so when you um you know obviously when your career uh ended with um, the space center that you stayed down in florida you split your time between new hampshire and florida so that was kind of when you got more heavily into the restoration and collection period of your motorcycle yes
3: yeah yeah because obviously
2: you have real estate businesses and different things but you that was when your collection grew that was when you did you spent a lot of time restoring motorcycles during these following years
3: yes yeah um I had gotten the numbers of triumphs and I started getting into the Vincent scene, which is another whole scene. So each scene has its scene, right? Each marquee mm. has its own little group, its own little following, its own style and so forth. And uh, I found that the British stuff I was just drawn to, I started getting into the British cars a little bit too, for some reason, had a Jaguar and some other things. So. It was interesting um, how that happened and of course I'm not English but I just kind of drew it. You sort of draw You're you from England yourself yeah so you knew where some of these motorcycles were being built and grew yeah. up around them and so forth so to have that parallel with you is uh, pretty interesting. It's kind of fun so what
2: was your favorite Vincent because I, I did have an opportunity to ride one month so I gotta tell you, I was blown backwards.
3: Well I had a, a, I had a Vincent uh, Rapide that I remember one time uh, There were a bunch of Harley guys going by me, and they were all tricked out and making a lot of noise and trying to go fast. And uh, I wicked up my Vincent, and I looked down. I was doing about 105 miles an hour on this Vincent. And then it started wobbling after I got into uh, some high-speed corners. And I just thought to myself, I'm wobbling this bike around at 105 miles an hour. Why am I doing this on this priceless, you know, somewhat irreplaceable motorcycle when I have Ducati sitting in the driveway that I'll do that in the flick of a wrist so I kind of backed off it was fun and then I said you know what maybe this thing is it's better left at 55 or 60 instead of 100. <laughs> because you <laughs> have modern
2: bikes you have an ST2, yeah. Ducati, you've got the yeah. new gold wing that you yeah. tour on
3: to. I mean you're constantly on two wheels. Right yes and I, I'll tell you what one of the most interesting things I've owned Motorcycles from the 1930s to current day today, and I really l- enjoy all of them and i 've got a, a you know a brand new Honda Goldwing with a dual clutch transmission, automatic transmission that I never would thought I would be riding that's first of all, you know I was never going to ride an old man's bike. <laughs> I will tell you what this new Honda Goldwing is no. Old man's bike. It's a no, super said. performance, yeah. super remarkable feat of engineering, design, handling. It's just a remarkable motorcycle. But then I'll jump on a 1950 Norton and or something and run around, and just as fun.
2: So um, a couple of years ago, some client calls you and dragged you off for an adventure ride. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Oh. Then? How did that all happen?
3: Well, you know, I'm an important guy, so I'm sitting in my office working away, and (laughs) and this gentleman calls me and says, hey, how about a ride through Peru? And I said, Peru? No, I'm too busy for that. I got stuff going on. I'm an important kind of guy. And Neil, that call was from you, and you said one thing to me, and you said, Chip, if not now, when? And you hung up the phone, and I, Went about my business for the day, and I thought, "If not now, when?" And I called you up the next day and i think said, you I'm did. In. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we rode off to, through Peru for exciting adventure. You on a BMW F800, and me on a GS1200. And did I have the 800 or the 12? I think I had a uh, no, I You, you had had the 800, the F800, the new one. Oh, Brand I had the eight, I had the, oh, the 850. 850. I'm sorry, yeah, peace. Yeah. The brand new 850 when they Well, I'm going to tell out.
2: you, it's funny because we also went with a gentleman called Ken Lucas, yeah, who's sure. fantastic. Ken's done a bit of racing, and you done a bit of racing. And very often when I go to Peru, I do love it, but you you tend to be babysitting most of the time because you're leading, and and people haven't been there, and you have a lot of disparity between the the riding abilities. And um, we only had a fairly small group, and and a number of them canceled right at the very end. So it just ended up you, myself, and actually it was a a trip for my foundation and it was a little bit of a fundraiser. And so it just ended up with the three of us. And I gotta say, I think it was the best trip (sighs) I ever had around Peru because we just got to ride like... Like banshees. I mean, there's no law, there's no rules. And (laughs) you know, if you've (laughs) never seen Peru
3: or never heard of it, it's like a racetrack from heaven put on the earth I mean, and some just, of those
2: roads, are just. you can't
3: even imagine them. You can't even, uh, you couldn't dream them up if you wanted to. Uh, the switchbacks, the elevation changes, the long sweepers, the short S's, the chicane, just mind boggling.
2: And fun. of like, course,
3: then we did what? Two days in the dirt, right?
2: Two days in the dirt. And then do you remember it was like pulling over and we, some llama farmer. Yeah. And the next thing we'd like picking up wrestling baby. llamas wrestling on the llamas side of the road. of the side
3: of At 16,000 of
2: And then sometimes the would just pull across sandwich the something and the mountains and village and sandwich or with the kids
3: or how about riding the to the top of how about riding the to of the top of the middle of nowhere side the side the middle of the bikes the side of the air was the so thin would the bikes would just bog out, and we would just laugh from, uh, from height uh, yeah sadness.
2: well we're <laughs> g- buzz them out yeah they just won't go will they you're just romping on oh, that throttle it's oh, just no bad but, yeah that was just a great trip so
3: it's fantastic Neil.
2: well of course COVID changed everything a little bit but you've come for you just had a two-day visit here yeah. at the advanced design center and the barber museum and obviously you have a bike here you've been here you've raced here but you know what are your thoughts on what's going on at barber these days well
3: an absolutely amazing uh undertaking um Brian Case is a managing director and he's uh, quite a genius, very intelligent, uh, got a purpose, a vision, working with some of the leading motorcycle designers of the world, actually, and that's the vision, to bring the top talent throughout the world to define the next generation of motorcycling, bring the next generation of young designers up through the ranks, and uh, as a engineer myself and designer and motorcycle enthusiast, it's. It's an amazing opportunity. I mean to get to the center, you need to walk by a thousand motorcycles to get to the d- advanced design center. It's so been an absolute beast getting you, can, you anywhere. <laughs> you know, if your brain isn't mush after walking by a thousand motorcycles and then you walk in to see, you know, the next futuristic motorcycle being designed and printed uh, from a, a 3D printer, uh, it's mind boggling. And it just gets my juices flowing and, um uh hoping we can continue to um, have some collaborative efforts as this thing develops in some fashion.
2: Well, I guess from riding Houdikas to (laughs) restoring Silver Jubilee Bonnevilles, launching companies, traveling the world, launching space shuttles, having your own clothing companies, and restoring bikes, who knows what's next for you. So hopefully we're along for the ride, and thanks for coming to talk to us today. Super,
3: thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure. um,
2: I just want to end up on your Silver Jubilee Bonneville because I think it's so cool that you have had that motorcycle since, since you were 16 school. years old. And if I ever get my shit together to get my Laverta put back together and take to England, you are absolutely bringing that thing to you England to come going. ride around and tell stories. So tell that story, Neil. What, what's well you know what? Arthur Colwell, who owns Ultimate Motorcycling, has actually, we have the whole Laverda story on one of the earlier podcasts. So. Yeah, I won't and so Neil, you've, you've had
3: this Laverta since you were in high school. Right? Yep, yep. and I've had my Triumph since you, I was in high school. Right. We both rode them through high school. We both have them. We both in the so process of So now we need to take them back them to England and go ride. And take them back to where they were born. Right. Yep, we'll tell some stories. Sounds good. Thanks, Thank you so. Neil.